God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. So when I was after my, in my second year of seminary, I was invited to uh, work at Campus Chapel in Ann Arbor. So I ended up finishing at a different seminary, started at Calvin, went to Ashland. And one of the things that bugged me, lots of things bugged me in seminary, but one of the things was this poster in the student center of Ashland. It was, this, it was a lovely poster, a picture of the earth, and underneath it said home. But then somebody had uh, modified it by putting over top, it said, not my. And I'm assuming there weren't extraterrestrials living uh, at the, on campus. Um, and I, I sort of, I get it, I get it, but it, it annoyed me. And then I, as part of my seminary studies, I took a course in, because um, Ashland is a church of the, it's a uh, church, no, there's a church of the brethren and there's brethren church. This was, it's brethren church or bro church, however you want to say it. Uh, I took a class in their doctrine, and I noticed in the syllabus, oh, we're going to be talking about the doctrine of creation. All right, well, I want to hear what they have to say about the earth, given that poster. Anyway, the, le- the day finally arrived, and the lecture and the readings uh, focused solely on the fact that uh, the Bro Church was skeptical of Darwin. That was it. You know, there were, there were a few times in seminary that I have a little outburst. And they weren't hostile, uh, but I don't know that I was always aware of how animated my arms could be when I had my little outburst. Anyway, in that class, I had uh, one such outburst. I don't recall exactly what I said, something about the dumb poster and the way it degraded creation. And after all, what was the message of Genesis 1? I, I, I do recall there was professor's response uh, mainly the, he was like this uh, like I was going to pounce uh, he goes we don't know we, we believe the church we, we believe the creation is good yes yes we believe it's good alright now it is true that part of the message of Genesis 1 is that creation is God's handiwork God did it and I can totally understand why people get offended at some blustering atheist who reads Genesis 1 and yells, not true, not true. Only an idiot would believe that's how it was done. And, but what I don't understand is why we continue to respond to that accusation on their terms. I mean, imagine somebody reading, the master, uh, you know, mastering the art of French cooking and saying, boring, worst romance novel ever, right? Like Julia Child, like, what? Uh, Am I supposed to take offense at that? Or if they they were reading Harry Potter and said, a fake Hogwarts doesn't exist. No, it's, it's a novel. It's fantasy. You simply don't read all literature the same way. You don't evaluate a piece of literature according to some uh, criteria it's not trying to meet. And so Genesis 1 is a terrible lab report. But it's not supposed to be a lab report. 
It, you know, it's not supposed to get published in a peer-reviewed uh, science journal. But to insist on reading it that way is to, is to miss what it's trying to tell us. I mean, let's, I mean, if we just sort of summarize what, what kind of go, is going on in there, what's the, the structure of this thing? Uh, I mean, the most obvious structural feature is that it's organized around a series of days, right? There's morning, there's evening, and there's morning, the blank day. Uh, it's this refrain that's sort of repeated. And there are other phrases that keep getting repeated. In some literature, uh, repeated phrases just make it boring. Repetition can be very vital to certain types of literature. Poetry, uh, music, liturgy. That repetition gives things a rhythm, um, create a music. So I think Genesis, is, Genesis 1 is, should be read like that. And there's also this wonderful sort of pattern or structure to God's actions. Uh, there, for day one, there's God's creates, and then God separates. Day two, God creates, then separates. Day one, it creates light, separates it from darkness, calls the realm of light, calls that day, realm of darkness, calls night. And then uh, and, on day two, there's God, uh, God creates this dome or firmament. And then God separates the water above the dome, realm of sky. Water below, uh, it, it, you know, the, from the water below. And then the day three, that first we get uh, separating. God separates water from land. So now we have realm of sky, or realm of day, night, sky, seas, land. And land then uh, is, so we, now we have all the realms. God's got to do a little work with the realm of earth because he's going to, call forth vegetation. And then what happens is we have God uh, speaks to create and then it's to fill. So God creates these realms and then he fills them. Uh, What's interesting is is, uh, day four, uh, we get the, the, the sun and the moon and these are created to rule the day and rule the night. And then the, call, the creation culminates, of course. You have all these animals. And then there's these special creatures who are called to rule over the other realms the, the, of uh, land, sea, and sky. Humanity, right? So the realms are filled and ruled. And then God looks at it all and says, oh, this is very good. This is very good. And then in response to that, of course, it's day seven, which for some reason they put in chapter two, but then God rests. Again, it doesn't read like a lab report. There's a rhythm, a, a pattern. It's like poetry. It's like a song. It's like a liturgy. God speaks. It, 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 God, and it speaks to a God, about a God who is who's sort of delighting in all this. God's having a blast, right? Uh, and so, and that's why God calls it good. He's taking pleasure in it. Now, what else does it mean that God's calling something good? I think the most obvious understanding of what does it mean that God calls something good is that when God speaks what's created, it's in line with what he wanted. 
You know, God doesn't speak and say, eh, it'll do. Or, well, not quite what I had in mind, but all right. No, it's good. It's exactly what God, there's a one-to-one correlation between what God intends and what God gets. But the structure of the story suggests that there's more than that to the goodness. Uh, This emphasis on separating this and that, creating realms and filling them, it underscores that, that this abundant life that comes out of this thing is not a chaotic Uh, abundance. It's not a mess. There's order. Things have their place. Things are placed within environments that allows them to flourish. And that is what's good. It's balance. And that's not, I mean, that's not an easy balance for us to strike. I think when I think of parenting, right, with when you're parenting, you want to create freedom for the kid to explore and, and, and flourish but you want to create some structure in there so that things don't go horribly wrong. And you know, striking that balance is not easy. I think any parent that thinks, oh yeah, I've struck that balance perfectly is probably kidding themselves. So the, you know, the fact that God does it and it's good, that speaks to who God is. God can strike that balance. Um, and then the resting, God rests, not because there's nothing more to be done, but because God has... Put, placed within the creation uh, the capacity to, to keep that creating going. You, I don't know if you notice when, I'm, we, when, you, when you read it, all this emphasis on seeds and seed-bearing plants and, and everything according to its kind. Well, yeah, God has created things so that he's put within it the, the, the raw material, the, the, the mechanisms that are going to keep that, that, that creating going, keeping that rhythm going, that song going. Uh, so anyway, my professor, yes, 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 we believe that the creation's good. Well, look, man, you've not done justice to this text. Unless you, that, you can't just say, well, God did it. It's enough. No, there's something to be learned here about who we are as people in relationship to this thing. We're to image God. We're to be people who live in the land and, and continue this flourishing. Uh, I just started reading... Wendell Berry's latest book. Uh, if you know Wendell Berry, interesting character. He's a, he's a farmer, and he farms land in uh, what county is Henry County, Kentucky, where his generations of his family have lived. Uh, and you wouldn't necessarily think that a white farmer from Kentucky uh, would write a book about racism. But actually, this book is about racism. It's his third book on racism. It's called The Need to Be Whole, Patriotism, and the History of Prejudice. And he's very upfront about the fact that he approaches this as a farmer, as someone who, with a profound commitment to the land, to earth, to caring for the land, to living in relationship with it, He is someone whose life and work attest to the goodness of creation. In fact, his argument is that racism became necessary when people started to detach from the land. When the land wasn't something they cared for and lived in relationship to, but when the land just became a vehicle for making money. 
Uh, it was just a, something to be exploited. It was at that point that they needed to, to have people to work the land. In order to get the people to work the land, in order to maximize profit, they had to, they, those people had to be degraded. And so it wasn't, you know, it's, 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 it's saying racism didn't create slavery. The need for slaves created racism. That's his argument. And of course, it takes a war in order for us to stop enslaving people. But the mentality that made racism and slavery necessary is still with us. Um, you know, he talks about the fact that when you live in relationship with the land, when you pay attention to the land and how it works, you realize it's a collaborative effort. You know, um, but we have a mentality, he says, of more of conquest rather than collaboration. Um, that we, we, the land is someone we, something we do battle with. And let's be honest, currently, it's chemical warfare uh, in, in that battle. There are these large corporations that are making sure we use pesticides and herbicides and, and you know, not to attack the land. One of the things that haunts Wendell Berry is the fact that after World War II, there was a real effort on the part of our government to industrialize farming. And he's to farm on a larger and larger scale. He says in 1940, uh, in the U.S., there were 6,102,417 farms. 6 million of which the average size was, was 175 acres. In 2012, there, basically, there are a third of that number of farms. And the average size has gone from 175 acres to 434 acres. And he figures that is a mil, you know, there are millions less people learning to live in relationship to land as a result of that. that are disconnected from land. And for Wendell Berry, addressing the history of racism as well as addressing our environmental crisis requires us to reconnect to land, to be creatures created to care for the, for the land. We have to become, we have to learn again to understand that our part of our humanity is in relationship to earth and caring for the earth. Now, particularly at St. John, I realize that there are people who know far more about farming than I do, right? Uh, you know, and you may be thinking, you need to stay in your lane there, Rhoda. Uh, it, it is a little presumptuous of me to read a chapter from Wendell Berry and go, hey, you know what we need to do about farming? Uh, I get that. I get that. But I, I think part of it, I mean, it's a very compelling book. But I also think it's about the fact that Jen and I moved in this house and we know it, it's no longer, uh, the yard work is no longer done by some company that the HOA has uh, contracted with. We're making decisions about our land and what we're going to grow and how we're going to grow it. And it sort of opened up a whole new world. Um, but again, I, 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 will, I am willing to stay in my lane. So this is me clicking the turn signal. To... Just kidding. I never check the, check the turn signal. Yes, Jen. All right. So, but back to the passage. This idea of collaboration 
versus conquest. You know, I think that that, we've taken a conquest mentality to chapter one. Uh, it, that seems to me a summary of the kind of mentality that it takes to say, you know what this chapter is about? It's taking it to the Darwinists, showing them they're wrong. No, man, we're missing the whole thing. This is collaboration. God, creation, us in relationship. And the reason, part of the reason why taking a conquest mentality to Genesis 1 doesn't make sense is because it, it was not originally written for a people with a conquest mentality. It was written for a people who were in exile because people had a conquest mentality. Israel is in Babylon. And this is a story written, you know, compiled and presented at that time. These are people who are trying to determine, how do I live? How do I be human now that I've been separated from the land that I once knew? The land, they're ripped from the land that they had cared for so deeply. And what this account does is it presents them with a God who loves land, who separates and fills and and allows life to flourish. God farms a universe. The whole of the earth is God's, and not just a particular region. Israel can work this land too. And this is a message that is reinforced by our buddy Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah, who is who's left behind to die while the others are taken in exile. His, this is his word to his, his, his fellow uh, Israelites in exile. Here's what he says. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give them, give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there, right? Fill the earth. And do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. So don't, don't adopt a conquest mentality with your conquerors. Bless them by being, by your relationship to the land. Anyway, after telling him the exile will last 70 years, God promises that they will come home. And then you get probably what is probably the best known verse in all of Jeremiah. Uh, it's a lovely verse. For surely, for surely I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans for your welfare and not for your harm, to give you a future with hope. Even in exile, God's people are to demonstrate the essence of their humanity, their divine likeness to create, to give life for the welfare of the city. You know, I, I mean, I could, I could imagine some people hearing this and thinking, well, yeah, sure, work for Babylon. How, how's that going to keep us from just becoming Babylonian, right? Well, here again, I think Genesis is helpful because Genesis offers this an answer to this. Creatures that are made in the image of God ought to follow the example of their creator. And what God does is God works and then God rests. 
follow God's example is to work, to, to build, to, to create, to bring life, but then to stop, to rest, and to remember that it's all God's. Whether we're living, in ex- we're living in exile or we're living at home and we're in Babylon or Israel or in the United States, it's all God's. Because work, work and work and work, work without rest, that's a conquest mentality. To rest and have no work, that's an exile. This rhythm of work and rest, work and rest, that is good. Indeed, it is very good. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.